Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out at the French Open for a chance to win a Grand Slam title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. See the action unfold as legends fight for glory and new rivalries emerge. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th, with match replays on demand so you never miss a moment. From the first serve to the final point, Roland Garros promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello and welcome to Brian Moore's Full Contact in association with The Telegraph. I'm Brian Moore and joining the show today are the former England prop Duncan Bell, South African journalist Brendan Atwell and Saracens flanker Marley Packer. Plus we've got the Warrington Wolves assistant coach Andrew Henderson who will give us his thoughts on the Rugby League World Cup final and Nigel Owens is back to answer your questions about rugby's opaque laws. But first I'm joined here in the studio by the uh, Harlequins hooker and head coach at Wimbledon RFC, Joe Gray. Joe, how are you? Yeah, very well, thanks. Thanks. How's, for your, me. how's your injury? Uh, it's coming along well. Um, rebroke my right thumb, uh, rushed a little bit, got back a bit too soon. Um, so I've had it plated and screwed, and I'm sort of halfway through now. I should be back just at the start mm-hmm. of the year. So. Um, interesting, you, you know, when you're, you're coaching, how much of a difference does it make to how you now view uh, yeah, on watch games, now, you, now you're actually coaching? Um, it makes a massive difference. I didn't, I didn't think it made as much as it does. I mean, I find myself watching games now in a lot more detail. Um, Saracens, Quinn's obviously a great game, but just watching the detail of the back three, when they're pushing up, who's swinging around, um, how much pressure they're putting in, the kick chase, for instance, how they're setting up for their box, how they gnaws a breakdown and try and uh, obviously get the right people in positions to get charge downs. Just the detail you look at being a coach because obviously you're relaying it back to your own team um, the best ways to do things as a player, you obviously concentrate on yourself mainly and what you're going to do, so i.e. your line-outs, your scrums. Do you think it makes you a better player? I think it definitely does because your understanding of the game is a, is a lot more than obviously um, without that knowledge. So, mm-hmm. Well, we're going to be speaking in detail about the South African game to Brendan Atwell later. So let's start with the Aviva Premiership. Uh, if you yeah. haven't heard the scores, Quinn's 20, Saracens 19, Exeter 42, Bath 29. Gloucester 39, London Irish 15, Wasps 32, Leicester 25, Worcester 14, Sale Sharks 18, Northampton 22, Newcastle 24. Um, let's start the Friday night fixtures. Worcester, a couple of wins recently, and they must have fancied themselves at home um, against Sale Sharks, and yet couldn't quite, uh, couldn't quite do it. Do you think... Um, they should be disappointed with that. Yeah, definitely. Um, especially, obviously, with the uh, with the card, um, they were struggling, which is a, a shame for them. Sale, I think it was their first win in a year. 
away from home. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously Sale will be chuffed with it. Being a man down as well for about 30 minutes of that game, Worcester will be really disappointed to obviously have lost that. And Northampton losing at home, Newcastle, a good start to the season. Yeah, um, had a bit uh, more of a flattening out. Dylan Hartley said they're in a hole and they need to get themselves out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I which think... is an obvious comment in one sense. But... <laughs> yes, definitely. Um, I think he's hit the nail on the head. Obviously, they are in a hole. Um, they've not they've not been playing well lately. Um, Newcastle to get that win was massive for them. Um, as you say, they start the season unbelievable. Um, their back three has been been insane. Sonotti Sonotti was was incredible again, all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, such a powerful man. He's offloading. He's hitting lines. Um, and Newcastle are playing. They're offloading. They're they're giving it to their support and they're scoring tries. And I mean, that's a great win for Newcastle. But for Northampton, obviously, um, yeah, they need to go away and uh, work on things. Cause it's are you, are you surprised at uh, the uh, the Newcastle um, campaign this season? Or, or was it something that you felt might might have been coming as any... Um, yeah, no, I think it has been brewing for a bit. I Obviously, I was surprised at the start of the season when they were sitting second, I think, with yeah. a five out of five. Um and I mean, the style they're playing, they're throwing it about, they've got mm-hmm. some physical carriers um, and they're playing a great brand of rugby, which uh, which at the end of the day, it's your performance that then wins games. Mm-hmm. So they're playing a great style and it's starting to click. Um, as you say, they've they had a bit of a lull the last sort of month, but um, that'll get them back on track with a great win. And Newcastle's always one of them teams, you always know they can do it. Mm-hmm. You're always worried to go go up there and play them on their Fridays or Sundays. Um, mm-hmm. But they've really started to show that they can do it home and away. Well, talking about unexpected things, Gloucester's ascension and current position of second in the yeah. Premiership, bearing in mind they're notorious, and I don't think that's too strong a word, um, inconsistency. OK, they were playing London Irish, who, you know, they've got their own challenges, but uh, is how much do you think that's down to the, the, the coaching input and, and the players? It's difficult from outside, but... Yeah, um, definitely. Um, I think it's got to be. Got to be. It shows from their form. I think um, Billy Burns has been been great throughout the season. He's really got some flair to him. He's been setting up tries. Um, and yeah, they're just they're just playing exceptionally well. I think it's got to come down to coaching. New coach in uh, brings a new lease of life. Everyone's trying to impress. Mm-hmm. Everyone's pushing for places. Um, and it's showing on the pitch. They're, they're playing some great rugby. Well, what is now our Midlands derby? Wasps and yeah. Leicester Wasps coming. Out uh, on top <laughs> before the game, I'd have probably backed Leicester to to do that. Yeah, um, but uh, they need to find some consistency. And Matt O'Connor was fairly sanguine about it afterwards. How do you go about when Wasps have got so many talented backs? Yeah, game changing backs. Yeah, what what sort of as a first up as a first up order overall? coaching tactic what would you be focusing on if you were playing wasps if I'm playing wasps I'm focusing on closing them down trying to not give their backs the space they want to play you've got Christian Wade out there you've got Elliot Daly you've got Cipriani pulling strings Um, my tactic would be to obviously get in their face first and foremost it always starts up front forwards have to be um, be dominant and try and take take the platform away from them I'd pressure their line out but then as it goes out wide I'd really put line speed on them get in Cipriani's face try and Mm. try and make him make them bad decisions he does occasionally do um, when he's under some pressure, he tries to make things happen sometimes by himself. Um, but yeah, definitely line speed, pressure their pressure their skills. Uh, we'll look uh, in more detail at the Exeter Bath game because we've got Duncan Bell, the former uh, Bath prop, coming on. But you know, Exeter sitting top of the table, eight 
Yeah. Points clear, um, defending champions, and from what I uh, saw, comfortable winners. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the first 60, they were just incredible. They were hitting the ball at pace, breaking lines. Thomas Waldrum, again, was was insane. And they... Um, they're just playing, playing fantastic rugby and making it look easy, sitting up at the top, as you say, eight points ahead. Um, but they've really came on. They just look full of confidence after last year. And, they're, they're, yeah, they're going to be a tough side to beat. How important do you think uh, Gus Steenson is to them? I think he's huge. He, um, he's Mr Reliable, isn't he? Kicks <laughs> yes. everything. He um, plays in the right areas, yet they've also got that um, offloading game that's very expansive and with a powerful forward pack. So um, I think he he runs a show and he's just Mr. Reliable. You know what you're going to get, but it's good what you're getting every week. And moving on to uh, Quinn's uh, Sarries. Sarries, I think it's five, five losses in a row five, now. Yeah. Um, we've got a question from uh, someone who calls Biggish Mouth, which I have no idea what that means, but um, saying, do they need a shake-up of, of their squad? Um <laughs> Difficult to see how, we, how much better you could get it as a squad. But exactly. uh, Quinns have been relatively successful, as, as probably as successful as anyone in recent years against them. Yep. Which is, is it, how much is the derby factor in that? Um, I think there is a, a big derby factor. I mean, you've got your local rival come into your, your ground and you know what the stakes are. The best team in Europe, they've been the best team in the league for, for many years and you know they're top side. And you're going to really have to be at the races to to compete with them. And yesterday was an absolute thriller. Um, last year was a thriller when we played them. And luckily we've we've got the uh, got the win the last few years. But um, definitely the local derby is a is a key factor. I think the dictation of tactics from I always say from from the halfbacks going forward or backwards they manage the game and obviously try and minimise the damage and and do what they can when they're uh, on the back foot or or in the in defence and. You know, dictate going forward, but other scrum halves have different talents. But is there a better kicking scrum? Richard Wigglesworth, Wigglesworth possibly. Yeah. For 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 you know, his box kicks and so on. Yeah, but different type. In terms of variety, Danny Care. Danny Care's a footballer, out and out. He's just got skill. Mm. He he was incredible. I mean, he was a, was it Sale early early part of the season. He did the same. A couple of. Really good kicks in behind, cross fields. Um, he just spots things that aren't on. That last one at the end, it was advantage for a penalty mm-hmm. off the cuff. It was a bit of a shinzy. It came off his shin a bit, wobbled a bit, which uh, helped with the good messing up the timing of it. Mm-hmm. But um, he just spotted that on an advantage, went for it. He put the one through from a quick tap for Charlie Walker. Um, and he just sees things and he's, his touch on the ball, his weight of it mm. is exceptional. So, yeah, I'd say he's the best attacking kicking nine in the game, I'd say. Strange because you could make a case for him or Ben Youngs, or, you know, starting, and yet, as classically defined, whether you call him a finisher or you call him a an impact substitute or whatever, and against tired defences as well, mm. um, he brings such a lot to that. Now he'll obviously be frustrated that he he doesn't start, but um, do you think? Is he sort of going to be sort of a role with England, or or is he likely to push for the? I'd, I'd love to see him push for that starting spot. I mean, you saw it um, yesterday that obviously he's our starting nine, but you can see he does it throughout the game. Mm-hmm. It's not for the last twenty when teams are tired. He's picking these opportunities throughout the game. He's a game-changing player. The quick taps that the buzz he brings to our attacking game, and also his experience now. He dominates dominates the team in defence, he tells the forwards what we're doing, he's, he's a key leader um, and I'd love him to push for that starting spot but the thing with Danny is because he's got such 
um, such speed when he comes off the pitch, such tempo that it does fit in nicely with England's tempo off the bench and that that game finisher. Speaking from a, your co- your coaching perspective, when you watch the internationals and we've just had the autumn series and you watch the Premiership, are there any significant um, coaching tactical differences or is it a question of degree? Um, yeah, a question of degree. I think the coaching tactics are pretty similar. You try and implement similar defences, similar attacks. It's just the the level of detail you can go into coaching. Obviously, we're, we're coached every day. The amount from 10 years ago to now is unbelievably different from when I started playing. The detail we go into in a meeting, the breakout meetings, how detailed every section of the game is your review on the opposition you have a breakdown of who carries what plays they like who hits what in a line like your detail is an unbelievable amount whereas obviously you can't get that into your coaching for a Saturday with the likes of Wimbledon you have for two hours on Tuesday Thursday and how much uh, store do you set by statistics um a bit I think I'm a bit old school with it I think you can have all the statistics and um all the systems in the world, but at the end of the day, it's heart, and if you want to do it for your mates and all the defensive mm-hmm. structures, everything. But at the end of the day, if you want to put your body on the line mm-hmm. um, for 80 minutes with, with your mates, that's the difference usually at the end of the day. OK, well, let's uh, go to our first guest. I'm pleased to say we can speak to the former Bath Sale in England prop, Duncan Bell. Hello, Duncan. Evening. Uh, Bath scored four tries in the end against Exeter, and yet, whilst they nearly topped 30 points, for a top four sort of... Not playoff, but you know, involving two of those, they were they were well beaten. Were you surprised at the manner in which that happened? I, I was a bit, uh, to be honest. It was it was one of those. I looked at the team sheet before the game, and I was actually um, pleased to see all the guys back coming coming back from England. And I thought they'd really have a chance, but I, I think you know, going off recent form, I think extra the real deal. You know, they really are. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just you know they were just blown away within forty minutes, and the game was over. And they might have scored four tries second half, but. It was, as you know as well as anyone, you know the game had gone by yeah. half time, and you know whether they admit to it or not, the extra boys would have taken their foot off the gas, and that's what allowed Bath back in the game. So they were blown away in all areas of the game by forty, by 40 minutes. Well, what's that down? Is that, is that down to the wrong approach tactically, or is it just down to you know not quite being on the you know the right psychological plane when you go in? I think they would have been on the right psychological plane. It's a, it's a relative local derby, yeah. and I remember playing against Exeter. It was always, you know, it was always a massive game. Um, and going down there is, is is something pretty special. You know, the noise that comes out of the crowd on a Saturday afternoon is, is pretty special. But they certainly wouldn't have been not been up for it. I, I think it was down to I think it's down to a number of things, but not. Uh, you know, they have got a number of injuries, especially in the tight five. I think they were um, pretty much. Um, you know, dominated in that area. Maybe not, you know, smashed around in a scrum. It was just, I think the breakdown was a key issue for me. It was mm. just so much quicker um, from Exeter. They, were, they are a big, dynamic side and they were just both blown away in that area and the, the ball that was coming out from the um, from the uh, transition zone was just so quick and Bath just couldn't handle it. Well, Todd Blackadder, uh, the, the Bath uh, coach, he's, you know, he's a fairly direct person anyway and he was straight up afterwards said look we came second in nearly every area especially the collisions but after, given the sort of start that they had and the way in which they look to be progressing this season um, is there a solution to this or is it just a case of you know you get back on the horse and, and try to get it round do they need to change things do they need to change selection do they need to change the way approach games or what well 
Yes and yes. I mean, I, I think I was I was honestly surprised that Van Aan didn't start the game. Whether he's carrying a knock or not, I don't know. You know, he's a real talisman. He's been there forever, um, and he's uh, you know he's, he's a phenomenal defender and he's great going forward and he's a big brute. So I was surprised he wasn't playing. But that said, I still think it comes down to injuries and unavailabilities. Toby Falatau was obviously massively missed, uh, and he'll obviously come back into the team. Francois Lowe's another one, you know, one of the world's best, if not the world's best seven, six or eight, you know, can play anywhere. So having these guys back, world-class players coming back into the team is obviously going to help things. Do you change the game plan? Well, I think every week you change the game plan, but do you radically overhaul the systems? No, you don't. You do that at your peril, really. That's just um, something you do potentially pre-season. You don't do halfway through the year. So, you know, it might have been broken one week. It doesn't mean it's broken for the entire season. So they've just got to get back on the get back to the, the X's and O's on a Monday and, and, and get down to it and work hard in the gym and, and on the training paddock. Hiya, Duncan. Uh, Joe Gray here. Um, hi, mate. Hi, mate. Um, just a question. Obviously, Bath played Quinns the other week and uh, played fantastic. Obviously, not great for us boys. Um, and then, obviously, this week, watching the game with Exeter, the, the speed they came onto the ball, they made the game line every time in attack. Um, yeah. Obviously, the likes of Thomas Waldrum, um, their key players, carrying, Karen Dickey was back, he, he played well. Um, Bath, are they not surely targeting then key ball, ball carriers, trying to slow them down, trying to take them out, out of the game, behind the game line? Because it just looked like Bath's defence was not, not at the races at all, especially that th- first 60. I agree with you. The, the defence wasn't at the races, but I, I still think you can target as many players as you like. You know, you, you know what it's like, mate. You come yeah, on to a Monday, Tuesday, and you do target. You know, you, you you have video sessions on the big ball carriers, and as well as many other things, and you do target these players. But sometimes, you know, you have to go. It's going to be a one-on-one with a big ball carriers. You know, Thomas Waldron always gets over the game line. Mitch Lee is humongous. Always gets over the game line. You know, these guys will get over the game line and need to be gang tackled. And yeah, it, it only takes one time to get over the uh, the ball, uh, the game line where the ball becomes quick. Then he's constantly on the back foot. And it's like a, it's like a, I don't know, like a, a spiraling effect. It gets worse and worse and worse and ends up, you know, you either give a penalty, you have to give a penalty away, or the or the defensive line is broken and they get a line break. So it's very difficult. It's very easy to say, yeah, let's let's gang up and let's gang tackle these guys. But if they get a one on one with someone they're going to get over the game line. And if you're then going backwards to the ruck, the ball is, you know, it's really hard to slow down. So, yeah, they probably would have had a game plan. Let's slow these guys down. But in reality, you know, sometimes you just can't do that. Uh, a couple of things that are not related to the specific game. The hoary old subject with Bath of the developing the ground has come up <laughs> again. Um, we all know why there are difficulties. You've got a grade one, you know, listed um, monument next to it. Uh, and it's got to be used, for, I understand, for more than a one sport. They can't just yeah. have a single function. Uh, no one wants to move from there because it's such a great location. Everyone can amble to it from the cafes and, and art houses in Bath and, you know, that sort of stuff. But can you, first, if, if they can't get the planning permission for a proper or a decent size stadium, can you ever see them actually moving from, from that location or not? Wow, uh, can I see them moving? Probably not. I mean, it's a decent size stadium now, albeit it's not ideal. Um, they will probably threaten to uh, uh, to move away, and, and quite rightly. But you know, it's um, you're right. It's a great place to play. No one else wants to move. No one wants to move the club outside of the centre of the city, other than a, a vocal minority. Um, I, I'd like to think they wouldn't move, but uh, you know, sometimes in this day and age, when you know, you know, it's all about winning and, and you know, the, the, 
the, the balance sheet on the end of the week. You know, will they have to? Maybe they will have to. I'd hate to see that happen. You know, I was there, unfortunately, um, last uh, weekend uh, on, a, on a Saturday afternoon, when actually when Quinn's played. So, you know, I saw the game later in the evening, but I was there, made the misfortune of turning up um, to Bath in the morning with my family, realising, miscalculating that it was a Saturday afternoon, and I could not move. It was a complete waste of time. With a young family, it was, it was, it was brilliant for, you know, the shoppers and people and the, the amount of people that go into the city centre, and they will be lost if the team move outside of Bath. You know, one of my best mates was a uh, <laughs> was a Cornish pasty shop owner. Believe it or not, I know it's hard to believe, but uh, you know, he said he um, did as much business uh, on a match day Saturday afternoon as he does for the entire rest of the week. You know, so there will be other shops within the vicinity which will be a very similar situation. So, will they want Bath to move outside of the city centre? Absolutely not, and it will be a terrible shame for the city. But I understand there are problems. Um, let's hope they can all work them out. And uh, just finally, your involvement with the RPA and the uh, demand, well, not necessarily demand, but certainly a bit more of a strong request now that they sort this extended season out by January. Where are we on that? God knows. Uh, God knows. I'm not involved with that from the RPA, to be honest. Okay. But um, uh, I I wouldn't like to comment. All I know is that the, you know... (laughs) From a spectator's point of view, more games is obviously great. You know, more more games, more things to watch. From the players' perspective, you know, they slightly changed the rules uh, in terms of the breakdown this season, where it's the ball is certainly a lot quicker, the balls in play a lot quicker, makes for a lot better spectacle. What it means in in real terms for the players is there's a lot more collisions. You know, a lot more ball carries, a lot more mm-hmm. tackles, yeah. and we're seeing already the impact on the injuries is is staggering. You know, the amount of players that are injured. Bath, for instance, I hate to think how many players are injured there. And that's, that's symptomatic across the board as well. So extending the season from a playing perspective only can't be a good thing. Mm-hmm. From, a, from a pounds and pence and, you know, from um, the, the public perspective, it'd be great because there'd be more games. But it's, it's got to be the happy medium. You can't end up with teams with having huge wage bills because they have to have 60-man squads. It's just, it's just not sustainable. So there has to be a happy medium. I'd like to think that this, what they have in place at the moment is more than enough, but, you know, I'm, I'll hardly want to comment, really. Which, which area are you involved in within the RPA? Uh, so I'm involved with the, uh, um, uh, you know, with uh, mental health, mm-hmm. basically, um, uh, to do with the, um, the programmes they have there. So I'm um, an advocate for all the, uh, um, um, the education programmes that go on there and, uh, and helping in that regard. Do you think that, uh, I know it's obviously taken seriously because I talked to, to Damien Hopper, do you think they've got sufficient resources uh, to be able to devote to this? Or is it a case of maybe they need to ask for more money or, or find well, money? I think, well, money makes the world go round more. You know, that yeah, yeah. More money has got to be yeah. better. But um, there's a finite resource of it. So, uh, you know, hopefully they can uh, get the, the funding that's required to really make a push. They are doing already. What they do behind the scenes is phenomenal. You know, when I was involved still playing and I retired in 2012 there wasn't a massive amount of help for players it was there but it was really unspoken about it wasn't pushed and then you know I came about and talked about it there were other players subsequently that have spoken about mental health issues within within specifically rugby and um, you know things have spiralled and uh, you know you've only got to talk to Rich Bryan and the uh, the RPA and Hoppers as well and you know there are players coming forward on a, on a weekly basis and whether that's not that's not necessarily a good thing because no one likes to see people that are struggling, it is a good thing that people are opening up and talking about it and getting the help that they need because 
you know, people obviously need help. They wouldn't be coming forward if they didn't need it. And it was obviously hampering their, um, you know, their obviously mental health, but also their playing performance as well. And no one wants to see anyone struggling. So any systems in place that can help have got to be a good thing. And obviously more money would help. But I still think the RPA are doing a bloody good job at it. Well, as you say, um, it isn't ideal, but at least people are now willing to talk about it without any sense of uh, shame or guilt or embarrassment. So that's, that's got to be a positive. Exactly. Duncan... Uh, great. Thank you very much uh, no for worries, your contribution. Cheers, see, you, see you again. Cheers, then. Bye-bye. Time now to discuss the uh, weekend's uh, ending international fixture between Wales. Two-point narrow win in the end over South Africa. Now speak to Brendan Atwell, a journalist based in uh, Cape Town. Brendan, are you there? Yeah, good evening, Brian. How are you? I'm all right. Now, I did actually write a, a column specifically um, on the South African perspective, and we all know that South Africa have peculiar challenges um, to other top sides in international rugby. They have the, well, depending on your perspective, something around 400 players playing outside. The top level of those, you could arguably, probably, pick a, an international 15 would be the equal, maybe better than that's on the field at the moment. And you've got the thorny issue of, of transformation and, and, you know, and, and quarters and so on. But what I saw on uh, last Saturday suggested a couple of things to me. Um, one more of an institutional one and one which is a coaching or senior players issue because when you have tries like the first Hadley Parks one where you know, the fullback is standing anywhere between outside the winger or certainly inside if he was inside the winger outside the outside centre and you don't have a sweeper that's a simple defensive system error and that just shouldn't happen at international level Very much so I mean uh, a lot has been written about uh, Andres Kutsia's, um continued selection at fullback um, it, it's been questionable at such um, and then added to that, um, Coach Alistair Kutsia's selection of um, uh, Warren Kalant at left wing. And I mean, he's a natural fullback, he's an exciting fullback. But yet you're picking someone on the left wing who, who doesn't understand at international rugby um, the defensive um, positioning of a, of, of a wing as a fullback. And um, that, that was also evident in, um, in the second try that Wales scored as well. When I watch... Super rugby, and I watch the talent that is still being produced abundantly out of South Africa, and this is both from the traditional white players and non-white players. It seems to me that it is still quite unreconstructed in terms of these are powerful and quick, blessed athletes, but they are very direct. You know, the, the, the artifice which is there in a lot of... You know, um, the All Blacks uh, Island with um, the direction from Johnny Sexton, the way in which runners are off the ball to fix defenders and so on, it is, is, is lacking there. And whilst it's been a strength and a huge strength in the past and the 2007 team you know, was based on, on putting pressure on, on, on other teams and turning mistakes over, it does seem to me that the game at the very highest level has moved on. And unless you add that sort of artifice and subtlety and guile to the traditional South African virtues of, of toughness, 
physical um, size and power, they're, they're going to continue to struggle, whoever they pick. No, I couldn't agree with you more. Look, I mean, South African rugby has always, has always been a, a forward-dominated uh, environment, so to speak. Um, South Africa have always had big, strong forwards. They, they've, they've based their play on, on a strong forward pack. Um, but, and I've, I've said it in the past, especially with Alistair Kutsia, um, he, no matter what side that he's coached, whether when he was at the Stormers, when he was Jake White's assistant leading up to the 2007 World Cup, the sides that he's been involved in have always struggled to, to attack. There, there have been glimpses where they've, they've put some enterprising play together, but it, from a general attacking display, Katsia's teams have always, always struggled um, to score. And the, 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 uh, if I can call it the lack of inventiveness of their play. Um, I mean, if we saw against Wales, South Africa dominated. Um, they, they started on the back foot, but they dominated play with the forwards. They, um, they turned over quite a numerous uh, amount of penalties at the breakdown, uh, at scrum time as well. But the backs are just not able to translate that front foot ball into points on the board. And, 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 and that has been, always been evident under Kutsia's um, teams. Um, but from a general South African perspective, it, it, it's always been a measure of, um, oh, let's look at how the All Blacks play. And we've discussed it before. You can't, you can't base your play on other players. You need to play to your strengths, but you need to play off those strengths. And you can't just play the normal crash ball all the time. It becomes predictable. It's easy to defend against. And we've seen that against lesser teams. Hi, Brendan. Um, Joe here. Um, just in terms of that, obviously... South Africa are a very physical side. They always have been. Um, but as you said, that lack of inventiveness in their attacking game, surely that needs to change because as a team playing against South Africa, you will know that they'll be physical, they'll run hard and they'll run direct. But that lack of moving the ball, moving the point of contact, that vision for where the space is, is very apparent. So how, how is South Africa going to change that in the future, do you think? Evening, Joe. Um, look, I think with uh, Rossi Erasmus's appointment um, as director of rugby for South Africa, um, he's proven in the past when he first started out his coaching at the Cheetahs and then moved on down to the Cape Town to, uh, to coach the Stormers and then uh, more recently at Munster. Um, he's a very inventive coach. Um, and I think very much in the lines of Nick Mallett, where he, he gives the players a bit more freedom of expression to, to play the moment in front. I think that, number one, is a good step from a South African perspective. And with him being a director of rugby, um, hopefully that will be able to filter down into the, the lower levels. But I think that that's a first step. I mean, it, it, it comes from the top. Um, you know, you, a coach can go in and go, this is the game plan that we're going to play. But if there is no freedom of movement with the players on the field to play the moment in front of them and change from that game plan, um, as we've seen with South Africa, you can get stuck. Um, and I think Russ's appointment hopefully will be the first step in the right direction for, for the Springboks. Do you think that they, uh, as a, the game as a whole in South Africa, is ready to accept that the traditional strengths, as I've described, um, now re require some augmentation? You know, they're no longer... I mean, South Africa in the last World Cup in the semi-final came as close as is humanly possible to beating a side with superior skill yeah. on sheer power. They came three points 
They nearly did it, but in the end, the All Blacks found some way to do it. I mean, one of the problems with uh, addressing um, problems is that you've got to admit they're there in the first place. Is there a willingness to do that, do you think? Look, I, I, I don't think South African rugby will, will, will ever move away from, from the strong forward-dominated play. Um, I think it's in our nature. We, we produce, as, as we say back home, big burkis, big farmers, um, guys like Osterrand pulling tractors and stuff like that. But it, 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 it comes down with the guys need to – the forwards lay the good foundation, which any team needs. Um, but it, it's to get out of that mindset of let's just, you know, give it to the inside center and play the crash ball and take it from that or wait for the opposition to make a mistake and try and capitalize on that. That just becomes too predictable. And South Africa just need to take that forward dominance and just, you know, grow a brain to use the space wisely out wide. That, that's just what South African coaches need to do. Um, I think we've just become a bit... Um, way too defensive, even in in domestic rugby. Um, but I think it's 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 a, a mindset change that needs to filter down from the top to go, guys. You know what? We've got the skills to play. We can do it. Just don't be afraid to go out and do it. Plain uh, and simple. Okay. Just as a, la- a last point, um, the rules relating to selection of players who are playing overseas. Um, They've tried to, to do something. Is it simply too late to try and get more players back home and given the current contracts and the, the attractiveness of the, the actual amount of money involved? Look, the, the financial basket is always going to be a tricky one to play, especially from a South African perspective, because the euro and the pound is, is obviously far stronger than what our local currency is. So to try and keep the good players or your top players um, playing domestic rugby as opposed to, to earning a damn good paycheck overseas is, is difficult for, for any administrator here in South Africa. Um, but yet I don't think that South African rugby needs to look at, um, they, they really need to take a professional viewpoint saying, you know what, yes, our currency is weak. Um, perhaps maybe they should look at changing and saying that the players need to play a certain amount of domestic rugby in order to be eligible for for Springbok selection. Um, just because a player can go and earn uh, top dollar overseas shouldn't in any way detract. You know, if the guy's got the skill mm-hmm. he's and he, he's, he's able to play for the Springboks or any international side, um, shouldn't be a cause for an administrator to say, well, you know, if you haven't played 15 or 20 um, um, international caps, so therefore you, you aren't eligible if you play overseas. Um, it's a difficult one, but we're in a professional era, and, and, and as in football, the guys go overseas, they apply their trade where they can earn the money. Um, and I think that the best match day 23 should be selected irrespective of where the player plays. Um, that, that's just my, my personal feel on it. But it's difficult for the administrators to try and balance the trying to keep the local talent in South Africa as opposed to denying players from earning a salary overseas. Well, we will uh, we will see what the upshot of that, but uh, fascinating contribution as always. Thank you very uh, much, Brendan. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Joe. Take Thanks, care. Uh, Joe, from a, when you're looking at the coaching thing, I, I, I've been out of the game a long time now. I understand that, but I do maintain this. The fundamentals of the game have not changed that much. The way 
in which you do them has changed markedly. Yep. But it is still quite simple. You need good set-piece ball. Definitely. You've got to find a way to carry it forward, to get over the gain line, so that defences are having to reorganise. From there, you're looking for either mismatches in terms of numbers, because people haven't been able to get back in defence quickly enough, or players backs against forwards and so on. And... Would you? Would you? That those are still. Uh, yep, yeah, still, still totally agree as you say. Um, the gain lines, the winner really in defence. You're trying to get them behind the gain line so that therefore you're set. They're having to scramble back, and in attack you're trying to get over the gain line. As uh, Duncan said with Bath at the weekend, Exeter every time they had the ball went over the gain line. Therefore the defence couldn't get set. So it's a it's a spiralling effect. It carries on. So as you say, the gain line is is the winner. Because you can look at the number of carries, and I know that. A certain number of players after a set piece are not mandated, but they're planned. And yep. you can vary them if you want to as a halfback yep. and one of you. But the more I watch now, the, the sides that do well and get over the gain line are the ones who are creative in the carries. They're the ones who switch the point at the last minute, either by, you know, by, you know, either by fleet of foot, even from forwards, or by simple inside balls or offloading or, or even as... As um, Billy Vinipol is very good at that, you know, turn around ball, the drag back, yep. your deep pass. Therefore, defenders are, are constantly guessing. If they're slightly off foot and you get a shoulder tackle, you're, you're over the gain line. But, I mean, if I can see that, you can see that. Yeah. Why are sides even moving ball in this unreconstructed one-out way into into you know defenses which are primed and are ready to hit them. Yeah, no, I hear what you're saying. I mean, as a player and at Quinns as well, we we get taught to to play a specific way and we practice it a lot, um, unstructured, so that you make the right decisions. Mm. Um, as you say, the Billy Vanipolo drag out the back, the tip inside, tip outside, the offloading game is all. If you do it um, unstructured. You obviously learn how to do it and which options are the best options to choose from what the defence is doing. As you spoke about the one-out runners around the corner, that generally happens when the structure's gone out the window Mm -hmm. and people are tired, so you're not thinking as much, so you're just getting around the corner to try and get over the gain line one-out. But as you say, as a defence, you love seeing that. One guy coming around the corner by himself is awesome compared to Billy coming around the corner with two runners off him, Mm -hmm. um, Owen Farrell out the back with another centre hard. Your eyes are everywhere trying to spot which option they're taking and players are getting better and better at picking the correct option now Mm -hmm. because we've got so much time and so much detail in the reviews, working on it on the training pitch to pick the right options. So definitely, as you said, um, having more options is the way to go and the one-out runners is generally not planned. It's just something that happens. Okay. Uh, Okay, right. Now we can speak to the top international rugby referee. One or two points to put to him. It's Nigel Owens, who I think has finished Panto. Have you? Uh, was it a good run, Nigel? It was, it was, it was very good, Brian. <laughs> First time in a Panto, and I've got to say, it was a lot, lot, lot of fun, I've got to say. The place was full. It was good to see everybody enjoy it. Really, it really was good. Really, really, really enjoyed it, I, I must say. Did you get standing ovations wherever you went? No. Well, I'm not sure if I got a standing ovation, but yes, as as a group in the Panto, we we all got a, a standing ovation, which which was nice, really. It was it was, it was a really great experience, and it'll be on uh, if you if you're not uh, slumbering into a into a sleep after your Christmas dinner on uh, Christmas Day, um, it'll be on on S4C. Okay. So um, I'll give you the channel for the subtitles so you can enjoy it. <laughs> Outstanding. A couple of uh, things, Nigel. Um, uh, 
in rooks, uh, who can play a ball uh, as a as a non-receiver, you know, scrum half or a person who's acting uh, as one, who is allowed to play the ball and when? Um, right, so first of all, um, the first guy in, so the first guy who comes in and now steps over that ball, under the new law, he forms an offside line. That mm-hmm. offside line now goes right across the field. But what he doesn't do when he comes in over that ball, he doesn't form a ruck. He forms an offside line that goes right across the field. Okay. So if he's a first man in, he now can play that ball after he's come in and set over it. And if he gets his hands on that ball before a ruck is formed, i.e. a player from the opposition binding on to him, he's allowed to continue to play that ball. I is a defender. So imagine I come in, I stand over the ball, and defender comes in lower than me, but on his feet, but he doesn't initiate contact with me. He comes in and he gets his hands on that ball. He is entitled to play that ball, even if the ruck forms afterwards, because mm-hmm. he was a first man in. So that has really changed. And then, apart from that, um, the only people who can play ball is somebody who's not in the ruck when the ball is at the base of the ruck, like usually your your scrum half, or your last man in the ruck. So if you are the last man in the ruck, and think of it like this would probably be the best way to explain it. Imagine the number eight bound in the scrum. Mm. When he sort of detaches and goes down to pick that ball up, that would be allowed in the ruck as well. So the last man in the ruck sort of detaches, gets down to pick the ball from underneath his feet, and he's the last man in that ruck, then that that is play on. But if he is two feet in front of that ball, he cannot reach back then and play the ball. So the ball needs it pretty much... Very similar to, if you, to make it easy for everybody to understand, imagine the number eight in the scrum, picking the ball from the base of the scrum. That is what Lowe was the last man in the ruck. Okay. And is it right that you have to be on your feet to do anything around this? Yes, yeah, so you, the, that hasn't changed really. As you said, I was listening to you earlier, you were saying the game's a simple game. It is a simple game. Basically, when you're on the floor, you're out of the game. You can't do anything once you're on the floor apart from two different situations. And those situations will be imagining a kick and chase and you go down on that ball on the ground, then you need to get up with the ball immediately. Or if a player comes in over you, he doesn't have to allow you to get up, but then you have to release the ball to him unless you get up with the ball immediately. Mm. Um, And also as well, um, when you're tackled and you go to the ground, you can do quite a few things with the ball as long as you do it immediately. And immediately, I would say, is bang, you tackle, you hit the ground, then your next movement within that second or so would be to do something with the ball. And that could be offload it off the floor, roll it back to a player who's coming on to you, or placing the ball back or whatever you want to do it, or to turn and and place it in one movement to, to score a try, for example. But it must be done immediately. And immediately is, you know, pretty quickly within a second or two, really. Hi Nigel, um, Joe here. Uh, we have Hi, a tweet Joe, for you, you um, from Neil Pemberthy. Um, why are scrum halves being allowed to take the ball out of the ruck and place it back on the ground before they're box kicking? Surely once they pick the ball up, the ruck is over. Yeah, he's got a good point there. Um, you see a lot of sides doing this now. Um, they tend to sort of put players in by the side of them on the back of that ruck, spanning out the metre or two away from the ruck. Yeah. And then they pick the ball back 
place it back another meter. So technically now it's out of the ruck and then they, they box kick kick it. And by taking it a little bit further away from the ruck and having those players in front of them, they are giving themselves more protection then from being charged down and stuff. And basically the, the way that I would referee that is we allow the scrum to do to, to do one thing here. Let's say the ball is sort of stuck in the ruck by, by between the legs or something. We would allow him to get that ball back underneath the highmost foot because of continuity of the game and pretty much because it'd be difficult to ruck the ball back because the ruckers come stuck. There's no other way that ball's going to come back but allow him to do that. So we'd allow that. But then I wouldn't be allowing the scrum If the ball is at the base of the ruck ready to be played, I wouldn't be allowing him to pick the ball back another half a metre or so and then leave it on the ground before he decides to box kick it. Once he takes it out of that ruck and places it back another half a metre, then for me that ball is out. And if those players stand at the side of that ruck are preventing people coming through to take that ball or to prevent the charge down, then they should be penalised for forward obstruction. So he's got a good point there, and that is a trend the scrum halves are doing now in getting a bit more protection so their box kicks don't get, get chased down. Well, I hope that's uh, all clear. Nigel, um, hopefully we'll speak to you before... Christmas, um, you must let me know what uh, channel that's on because I will record that and, and scrutinise in detail your your contribution to the to the overall plot and the eff- efficacy of that that panto. Thank you very much. All of that. Time now to uh, switch gender. Uh, as you know, we like to feature the women's game and specifically the. Tyrell Premier 15's uh, game. At the moment, uh, well, it was until the weekend, the case that Saracens uh, were not top and Quinns had not lost. But over the uh, weekend, that uh, changed. We had uh, a win against, uh, well, with a good crowd, actually. I think it stayed on after the uh, men's game. And I'm really pleased to say we can now speak to the... I tell you, this is not an exaggeration to say the prolific... Uh, Saracen's flanker, plumber by trade, Marley Packer. Hello, Marley. Hello there, Brian. Just the three tries this weekend, then. <laughs> yeah, just the three. But the, the massive forward tries, obviously, two from driving line outs, which was um, just a fantastic setup from everybody knowing their roles, their positions, and getting me across the line. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, you, you're far too modest. I mean, yours is a 28 19 win. Richmond uh, lost. Nil to 44, forward Waterloo Ladies, 12 all Worcester Valkyries, the Darlington Mud and Park Sharks, three Bristol, 26, Loughborough Lightning, 43, Gloucester Hartbury, 33. Out of that, I would not have expected Richmond at home to be nilled, uh, no, albeit by no, Worcester not. Ladies. <coughs> what, I mean, was that, uh, what was that down to, a superior Wasp performance or just, you know, an... Not inept, but an ineffectual one from uh, from Richmond. Um, I'm not too sure. Like, obviously, Was um, s- s- signed quite a few England players, so mm-hmm. they've come off the back of Autumn Internationals. So um, they've obviously come back on, on great form, um, and they obviously managed to keep the defence really well. Obviously, um, I've not had a chance to actually watch the game yet, but mm-hmm. um, from what I hear, Was played really well. The likes of Amy Cocaine, Abby Dow. Um, really performed, so um, their defence must have been strong for the Richmond team as well. So got Daniel Waterman as well there, that's uh, another significant uh, influence. Yeah, massively. Um, she got player of the match of that game as well. 
So um, I think they put on quite a show, uh, Wasp did. Um, and it seems to be that um, their team's coming together because obviously they had um, <clears throat> four or five new sign-ins this season. Mm-hmm. So um, it, obviously they're starting to gel just at the right time for them. What about uh, the uh, Valkyries? The first, I think, maybe the first points of the season. And uh, is it I mean, one match doesn't uh, make a season, but... Uh, They've been beaten quite heavily in a lot of the games. Are they on the right track? Yeah, I think so. Um, so they lost a lot of players too at the beginning of the season. And they've got a lot of um, young girls coming up through and players that have not played Premiership rugby before. So um, I think they had a massive um, like opening few games. Um, I know Saracens, but I think without a third game, we put a lot of points on them. So I think it's learning, building what they needed to do um, and then for the, the second half of the season to um, produce the goods. And obviously, mm-hmm. it's a great start getting a, a draw um, like they did. But 12-12, you don't see that often. And just uh, finally, the overall um, composition of the game at the top level, there was a bit of controversy uh, given the sort of quasi-franchise system that came out, but how do you think it's working out so far? Yeah, like, really good. Uh, Loughborough Lightning, they're at the top half of the table. Um, it seems to be, uh, it's mixed a few things up. Uh, Gloucester Harterbury, they're, they're top half of the table as well, and they're two teams that have come into this new um, materials Premiership League. So, um, I think it, it's been a really good mix-up. Um, I think... Uh, from the England girls being in camp, like there's been quite a bit of banter flying about about mm. playing each other. So um, yeah, it's been really good. It's exciting. There's a, a lot more um, media publicity um, showcasing the game. Like obviously, the first ever women's uh, match shown on Sky Sports was the Richmond Wasp game. So um, that's like fantastic for us. Um, but us getting to play Harlequins after the men had played the double header. So, um, yeah, that's like really good. And the crowd was, a lot of the crowd stayed on. So, yeah, no, it's really good for the women's game. Well, Marley, it's not an exaggeration to say you are one of the shining lights in, in English rugby. Um, good luck for the rest of the season. Keep uh, putting the tries over. Thank you very much, Brian. Thank you very much. Take Thank care. You. Take care now. Bye-bye. OK, let's now change codes, not just genders, because the Rugby League World Cup final was held Uh, In the early hours of of our time um, last Saturday, uh, England, close but no cigar, 6-0, lost to Australia. can now speak to Andrew Henderson, the Warrington Wolves assistant coach. Hello, Andrew. Hi, Brian. How are you, mate? I'm all right, mate. Now, can you clear this up? Because a lot of people have asked me, and I'll be honest, I don't know the answer. Why why do you have an Australian referee? I'm not saying it it changed the game, but... It's a tough one, mate, to be honest with you, Brian. Look, the reality is, is you've probably only got referees in Australia and England that are professional and that are full-time professionals. So, uh, yeah, the truth be told, that you, there are some probably French referees and, and New Zealand referees, but are probably, you know, not at the standard probably required to, to officiate, uh, you know, a World Cup final. So the, the reality is, is it has to be picked, whether it's an Australian one or, or a British one. Uh, one of the two would have had to be selected to you know, to take that game on. OK, that clears up that. And I want to make it plain, right, certainly from my assessment, yep. that wasn't the deciding factor in the game at all. Um, what was the deciding factor, I think, um, was the error count in the end 
uh, that led yep. to England not being able to have enough repeat sets. And, and and another contributing factor, which is directly relevant to that, is the fact that the Australian kicking game was just better. Yeah, look, I think, look, the Australians are, are the best in the world and they're the best in the world for a reason, Brian, you know, because, you know, what they can do is they can sustain pressure for longer periods and they can play to a certain level for longer periods, you know, and they can execute and do the little things really, really well to a high standard. And, and again, that's what you saw on, on uh, you know, in that, in that World Cup final. Um, you know, I thought England, from their perspective, were, were excellent. I thought they were outstanding. Um, I thought the way uh, their defensive attitude was was, was brilliant. Um, you know, they were they were fantastic across the board, but the reality was is their execution uh in, in the attacking areas of the field is probably what ultimately left them down. They just mm. couldn't create or or be clinical enough, I I should say, to, to take their opportunities. Um but you know, from from England's perspective, I thought they, they really gave a really good account of themselves. Um but unfortunately, like you said, weren't able to come up with the goods. Where do we rank this Australian sides? I mean, I'm old enough to remember yeah. The Meningas and the Growths and the Lewis, as I watched Wally Lewis play in the State of Origin. And then, you know, uh, Brad Fittler, uh, Benny Elias and, you know, those iconic players. How comparable are, are this team to, to, to those ones? Oh, look, the game's changed a hell of a lot since since those days. But, uh, you know, I think, I think one thing's for sure is... Uh, whenever you look at any Australian team over the years, whether it's the era that you're describing there, Brian, or, or, or the modern era, is they've got fantastic players and they're a fantastic team and very, very difficult to beat. Um, and that's that's the, the, the facts, plain and simple. And I think in every era, you know, they've produced, you know, world-class uh, players that excite the fans and, and excite the, you know, the, the world of rugby league. So um, I don't think that's any different. I mean, to compare... Very hard to compare how this side ranks compared to a previous Australian sides because, like you said, the game has evolved and, mm. and changed. You know, uh, you know, quite a lot over over the years. But one thing's for sure is is those Australian sides um, generally are uh, you know of, of a high standard. We were discussing earlier in our in our code the seminal role of the halfbacks, both you know when you're under pressure in defence and in attack, yeah. um, and Australia again. Very talented, experienced, and uh, yeah. you know, halfbacks who get good options. Um, yeah, would you say that that that, that in, in in league the halfbacks have got exactly the same amount of influence? Yeah, I agree. Yeah, no. Look, at the end of the day, the the pivotal players, which are your, which are your two halfbacks, your seven and six, uh, your hooker, who's, who's a nine, is a pivotal player, and your fullback, your number one. So those four players. Uh, are the spine of your team, you know, and they are pivotal players, and and those guys are the ones that control the game for you. You know, there's you know, everybody has their role to play as such, you know, but but ultimately those four players, um, you know, certainly prove it, uh, provide a telling factor in, in the outcome of the game because it's down to them to control, you know, to organise, you know, to, to execute good decisions under pressure, um, you know, when to kick, when to pass, when to run. Um, you know, and obviously defensively too, got to make good decisions. And I suppose the luxury that the Australian team has, Brian, is you know the nine, which is which is Cameron Smith, the seven, Cooper Cronk, and the fullback Billy Slater. Well, those three players all play at club level. I mean, it's quite a unique um, situation that they find themselves that those three pivotal players. And I don't think any any probably team in the in the world in any sport um, has been blessed with the cohesion. And continuity that that this Australian side has, because those three players that I just mentioned, they play week in week out for the Melbourne Storm in the NRL competition, and have done play together for the last ten years. So to have that 
you know, chemistry that they have week in, week out at club level and then to be able to replicate that uh, for Queensland in the state of origin and Australia is, is, a, is a pretty unique and, and, and special thing. Well, we'll have to wait for a while till England can try and uh, rectify the result on Saturday. But in the meantime, congratulations uh, to Australia for that and thanks very much, Andrew. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate your time. Take Thank care. You. Thank you. Cheers now. Bye. Joe, um, let's return to the, 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 the coaching aspect. And it's the same in league as well. You can do certain things and you can plan certain things, but it's still the case that ultimately you can only prepare players with a range of skills to do and make the right decisions with what they see in front of them. Yeah, definitely. Um, in terms of coaching from years ago when I first started being coached, it was very drill-based. You go off, you practice your skills, um, very much that. Then you try and take them into a weekend. Now, coaching's developed to a lot of game-based work on the field. So whether it be touch games, whether it be scenarios on the pitch, but you might break out and do little sections of drills, but you always spend the majority of your time in scenarios that you'll see on a weekend okay. so that you can try and obviously learn from any mistakes you do in training and implement them on a weekend. So there's a lot more game-based training that goes on. Because, you know, we've been talking, uh, you know, about uh, stats earlier on and so on. And one of the difficulties with a relatively young professional game is when when coaches came in, they measured everything you can measure. Yeah. You know, and that, they, they you know, can tell people are <laughs> faster, they're stronger, you know, whatever, fitter. What you What is much more difficult, A, to quantify and B, to coach, is that spark of creativity, the right decision-making. Yeah, definitely. Now, are there drills that try and major on that? And if, if so, what, what, sort of thi- what sort of things might you be asking players to do to try and develop that aspect of the game? Um, yeah, definitely. I think there is a part that you you either have it or you don't. Your Danny Cares was born with that, yeah. that sort of X factor in his game. Um, but there's definitely drills you do use, and, and we, have, we have great coaching at Quinn's, um, and when I moved to Quinn's eight seasons ago, um, the level of what they did that it was off the cuff. You had to use your heads head up in um, in attacking drills. They actually worked as a forward. I was a hooker coming from a physical Northampton side, and we went in and in preseason, first things we we're doing was one handed offloading out the back, mm-hmm. and I was like, this is not not right. <laughs> I used to have him mauling up and down the pitch. So yeah. um, they definitely try and teach everyone the skills to be able to do it on a weekend. Um, and then, as I say, they do a lot of in-game scenarios um, to try and do that because the fact is in training you can make mistakes so you can give stuff yeah. a go um, and the best thing is not to punish people for doing that you just you just crack on get the ball back and we go again because you'd rather them try things that don't work in training or try things that do work and then they have the confidence to do it on a weekend rather than mm-hmm. try and bottle it all up and then do it all on a weekend Well we've got uh, the European stuff coming up Quinns are going to struggle to get out of the group um, given the uh, results so far. But we've got uh, a lot of fixtures, the, the, you know, the Challenge Cup and the yeah. Champions Cup. Are there any that uh, stand out for you that we, you know, from a playing point of view, you think are, are likely to be attractive? Well, obviously, um, I'm Quinns through and through. So yeah. uh, the Quinns against Ulster will be a massive match. Ulster's been on good form. Um, I think they've only lost three throughout the season um, and we're playing them home and away over the next two weeks so that'll be massive um, bringing them to the stoop on on Saturday mm-hmm. um, 
and then going over to them. Um, it'll be it'll be tough. I mean, we've had a have a, had a tough run so far. Lavishel came over, played really well against us, and then obviously Wasps. Yeah, I away. must admit, I didn't know. To my shame, I didn't know enough about La Rochelle and how they managed to achieve their successes yeah. in the top 14. And they were a bit of a revelation. Yeah, definitely. Um, especially, you know, the way in which they played with sort of an unreconstructed French flair uh, thing. And from a national point of view, um, well, you don't want this if you're anyone else, but yeah. from a French supporters point of view, if they return to that, it can't be a bad thing. No, definitely not. And I mean, La Rochelle have some absolutely massive men that you don't want running at you. I remember watching the game and Will Collier had had the 140 kg number eight run at him about three times yeah. in a row. And everyone was like, oh, you don't want to be making that tackle. But um, <laughs> they, they have some massive guys. And then, as you say, they have that French flair as well. Lamb's done well going over there, mm-hmm. um, pulling the strings. And uh, they're throwing it about. And as you say, it's it's only a good thing for French rugby. Um, but yeah, they're, they're big giants. They're going to be uh, tough to beat in our league. And Gloucester, I mean, they're doing... Uh, well in the league who knows whether they can keep that up but certainly in terms of their uh, Challenge Cup I would think that they should set the target of you know of, of not only doing well but winning that yeah definitely I mean with the form they've got at the moment being second in the league they're going to be full of confidence and that has to be their target to go and win that win that Challenge Cup it's a it's a great great cup to win it's a great way of getting into the Champions yep. Cup and you go in with full of confidence I mean I've been lucky enough to be at Quinns when we've done it twice um, sorry we've done it once and we were in the final um, the other year with Montpellier and being in that final is, is a great thing the night mm-hmm. before the, the big Champions Cup won and if you can get into the Champions Cup through that you go into the following year full of confidence mm-hmm. and Gloucester should definitely be aiming for that well unfortunately uh, we haven't got time for any more you've been listening to Brian Moore's Full Contact in association with The Telegraph thank you very much to my co-host Joe Gray and producer as always Abby Patterson. Remember please subscribe to the podcast because it's completely free and that way you'll never miss an episode. We'll be back next week but for now, goodbye. Brian Moore's Full Contact is just one part of the Telegraph Sport podcast family as you can also subscribe and download Total Football. Join Tom Gibbs and a host of Telegraph football reporters as they aim to take you behind the football stories of the weekend. Your Monday morning commutes will be instantly better for it. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.